Welcome to TalkEerie.com's Joel Natale Show, Erie, Pennsylvania's daily podcast. Every day, we tackle the biggest issues that the Erie PA region faces. Stay informed and involved as we advance the narrative of Erie. Now, here's Joel Natale. We're excited to talk about the second annual Maker Market, and with us here uh, from Erie Arts and Culture is Patrick Fisher, the Executive Director. Patrick, thank you so much for joining us this afternoon. Yeah, thanks for inviting me in. It's good to be back. You got it here. And so uh, it's been quite a summer for you guys. I mean, really, you've accomplished a lot, haven't you, at Erie Arts and Culture? Yeah, we've been busy. In four months, we created 13 new large-scale murals. In addition to that, we've uh, distributed a lot of money out to artists as well as small and mid-sized arts organizations through a grant we received from the National Endowment for the Arts. Uh, so we've been extremely busy this summer. Has this been a good year for capacity, like dollars coming in from various grants and so on? Yeah, the grant we received from the National Endowment for the Arts through the American Rescue Plan, uh, the, the funds that are going out to small and mid-sized organizations are uh, f- up to $5,000, and it is supporting operating costs. It's not programmatic expenses, so it can be used to build capacity. And for some of the smaller organizations that are uh, receiving these grants, their annual operating budget might only be $30,000, dollars $50,000. So to get a $5,000 increase that they can put towards you know, staff time, marketing expenses, et cetera, is, is certainly a big increase in their annual operating budgets. That, that's exciting to hear. And and it give I would imagine it gives hope for those that hey I want to maybe see if I could expand my horizons in this little niche of whether it is a, a physical art or some kind of performing arts or something like that. Yeah. yeah, and I think that those organizations that are being strategic about the funds they receive are also thinking about now that we have these funds, how do we leverage these funds? Mm. There's plenty of other grants that exist in our community that do require matching funds, and this is a great opportunity to leverage the dollars uh, against matching requirements, as well as provide credibility for some of these organizations and artists. It's the first time they ever received funding from Erie Arts and Culture. So being able to add that on their website or their credentials, it helps, I think, uh, bolster trust in their ability to deliver their programs and their work in a way that um, shows that Erie Arts and Culture stands behind them. Talk about how the arts organizations did at Erie Gives. Was there strong support there? Yeah, I mean, I think that there was strong support as a whole for Erie Gives across the board. Another record year for it, and I think that the arts were no different. I know that the Philharmonic in particular performed extremely well. They always do. They also have the generosity of a board member who typically matches funds brought in. So, you know, days like that and then having contributions from internal stakeholders such as board members only make those dollars go that much further. But I think as a whole, arts organizations did see a pretty, you know, positive day on Erie Gives. Fantastic. All right. Well, let's let's talk about this, uh, uh, this second annual maker market. Talk about the, uh, the initial idea for doing uh, such a, an event like this. Yeah, so in the fall, Erie Arts and Culture historically put on an event called Fall for Arts and Culture, and it was a event that was held at venues like the Erie Playhouse where folks would come in, they would sit down, a program would be delivered to them, and we started to engage a lot of our stakeholders around, is this the type of event you want to see? Um, you know, is it the event that you want to dedicate your time and resources towards? 
And we found that it wasn't necessarily. And so we wanted to figure out how do we evolve as an organization to deliver an event that adds value to both our stakeholders whom we try to work with to build their capacity, but also the community at large who we hope attend our events. So after uh, the pandemic, when we did a virtual um, kind of variety hour, as a team, we started to think about what do we do to do something that's impactful. And our creative director, Jade Mitchell, actually came up with the idea of a maker market. And we ran with that. Uh, the first annual Western Pennsylvania maker market we held last year in Perry Square. And uh, mm. it was a beautiful day, much like today, which was beneficial <laughs> for us because sure. when you're doing an event in early November, you're never quite sure what to expect. Uh, we partnered with Erie Downtown Partnership on that. I think we had about 35 vendors from throughout western Pennsylvania, so as far south as Pittsburgh, we had some vendors come up for it. And uh, when talking with our vendors after the fact, I think we calculated that in total they sold about $12,000 worth of uh, handmade objects and goods. Wow. So we realized that it was a very successful event. We also, in addition to surveying those who participated as vendors, we made sure that we engaged those that were attending as customers and talked with them about what was their perception of the event. And many felt that it was one of the strongest markets that they had uh, participated in throughout the, the year here in Erie. So that led us to want to do it again this year. This year, I think we have something like 45 vendors confirmed, maybe a few more than that. Uh, and again, we're bringing folks from not only Erie, but also uh, Crawford County. I think we have some from Venango County. We have some from Pittsburgh. So we have a good mix of both folks that live in your community who you might buy from at other times in the year, as well as some vendors that this will likely be an introduction to what they make and have available for sale. What is t uh, What would be typically... Uh uh, what kinds of uh, deliverables would be included in a maker's market like this? Yeah, so we try our best to really curate the market. Okay. We want to think about quality objects that uh, you either want to buy for yourself or give mm -hmm. as a gift to others because we recognize that it is leading into that gift buying and giving season. Uh, so we have anything from wearables to consumables to furniture. Um, so we have uh, a few different clothing designers that will be there. So uh, Andre with Rabbit 3 will be there. Ansamana, who is a West African tailor, will be there. We also have uh, some folks from Pittsburgh who are uh, clothing designers that will be coming up. We have woodworkers. So both Armando, who just launched Black Monarchy or Black Monarch, will be there. Uh, we have Brian Greary again that will be there. And again, some woodworkers and furniture builders from Pittsburgh. Uh, I think we have some consumables. So uh, Erie Ale Works will be there. Uh, North uh, Edge Coffee will be there. And then just a bunch of um, decorative objects as well, um, tactical objects, uh, utilitarian objects. So it is a really wide gamut. Whether you're going there with $20 or coming there with $2,000, you'll find something that's within your budget. And it's generally all handmade like that? or Yeah, so it's all uh, the folks that are setting up as vendors all play a role in making the goods mm. that are available for sale. So either they're the designer behind it or they are physically crafting it themselves. So we have jewelry makers, woodworkers, um, paper makers, but then we also have those fashion designers, some of whom are actually sewing. So like Ansamana sews everything that he sells. Uh, he's going to actually be there with dog jackets and dog coats. Oh, cool. Uh, and then someone like Andre who's doing the creative work and designing it, but then working with others to um, fabricate it. That, that's amazing. I, I'm wondering how much technology is coming into play in this in this kind of maker space. You, you hear about 
that pretty much anybody could buy a 3D printer anymore. I'm, I'm wondering if that that's starting to come into into your realm. Yeah, I don't even know if you need to buy them at this point. That's when you true. think about a place like the Blasco Public Library, I don't know the last time you were at the Idea Lab, but yeah. the way it's evolved over the last really even year, year and a half, what they have available down there, if you wanted to be a maker and develop something that you could actually turn into a commerce-driven uh, activity, you have the full potential to do it at your public library wow. with a library card at no expense to you. You just have to go in, get trained on the equipment, and then you have free access to use that equipment. You also have really great partners in our community through the Beehive Network mm. that you can also partner with on prototyping and other things. So I know last year we had a vendor who was making uh, acrylic jewelry where they were working with, I think the Beehive or, or a local manufacturer to actually cut the acrylic out for them using a water jet or a CNC. So I do think that the resources that are available in our community do help feed the maker ecosystem that exists in our community. It sounds like some, some folks might be like pure artists where they're making something and, uh, you know, you know, able to sell it, you know, much like a, a painter would sell, you know, a paintings on a wall. Uh, but then others are kind of advancing it into a, like in, an industrial, you know, kind of approach. Yeah, I mean, that's why we yeah. don't call it kind a, of a scale. Yeah. yeah, that's why we make sure we don't call it an artist market, um, yeah. because if you called it an artist market, I think people only would assume you're buying things like paintings, et cetera, that you can hang on the wall. There will be some of that there, but you'll also, like I said, Armando with Black Monarch, he's making extremely high end mid-century modern inspired furniture wow. that is just absolutely gorgeous. Uh, and as we think about all of these new apartments that are being built in downtown Erie, uh, what better way to furnish them than only maybe buying it 10 blocks away, manufactured by someone that has a shop maybe another 10 blocks away. And that's the other benefit of something like supporting local makers when you're thinking about gift buying and, and giving is it also has oftentimes a uh, less of an environmental impact than buying something from a major box retailer or an online retailer because the carbon footprint is much smaller. It's not being shipped across country. Sure. It's not being made across country. It's being made locally, oftentimes with locally sourced materials, and then you can pick it up locally as well. So there's tons of benefit to um, utilizing something like the Western Pennsylvania Maker Market when it thinks when you think about your holiday gift buying season. Patrick Fisher is our guest. He's the executive director of Erie Arts and Culture. And Patrick, we're talking about the makers market, the maker market, uh, the Western PA maker market, a one day pop up marketplace that is going to be happening at Feed Media Arts. That's 1307 State Street. I want you to tell me the story of Feed because this is really unique and special for Erie. Yeah, I think it's really appropriate to have a maker's mark in a place that has as much history as Feed does, as well as what's going to serve as the future potential of the building. So Benton Bainbridge is a Erie native who moved away in the 80s, moved to New York City, where he pursued a career as a media artist. Uh, he is internationally acclaimed for that work. Uh, and... Um, I think about a year, year and a half ago, he moved back to Erie to invest in the renaissance that we're seeing here. Wow. Uh, and he wound up purchasing 1307 State Street, which anybody that has passed that building knows that that building needed quite a bit of work. Uh, and he has been making a tremendous investment in the redevelopment of that building. It's, I think, a five-story building uh, that most recently when it was active was a furniture maker. 
Um, but as Benton has worked to strip back the layers of the building and reveal its architectural beauty, one of the things that was found were these early markings on the wall. And the history that Benton learned was that it was once a, a builder of wagons, uh, pre, I guess, uh, automobile here in Erie, wow. so in the 1800s. And there's markings on the wall where they used it to actually size out, I would say, the circumference of the wheels for the wagons. So he spent, you know, uh, a tremendous amount of effort and resources to, um, I, I think they call it dry ice blasting the wall to remove all of the dust and the debris and the buildup that was there without damaging the original brick and the markings that are on the wall. So you're going to walk into this building that many have either never set foot in or certainly haven't set foot in in decades, and they're going to see these beautifully restored maple hardwood floors, um, beautiful architectural features, but also a lot of... Uh, you know, historic elements of, of Erie's industrial past and, and past of being a maker. That that's remarkable. And and what a what a difference of mindset and approach compared to the battle days in the sixties and seventies where we were tearing stuff down left and right. And unfortunately we still kind of tear a few things down. Yeah, you know. I think that, you know, it's also remarkable that it's an individual that's doing this, right? Yeah. We're certainly, we're sitting on the 400 block of State Street, and we're certainly recognizing all the work that EDDC is doing yeah. here and all the resources that are going into this. Certainly also recognize what the Zafris Family Limited Partnership has done and, and what Joel Duterman has done and what uh, Jim Berlin has done. And to see another individual, mm. an individual, come back and make this type of investment, which is, you know, guaranteed to be a multi-million dollar investment in downtown Erie, that is something that as a community we should be celebrating, rallying around, and then also asking how do we assist you in this process, knowing that this investment can attract additional investments. Yeah, I, I don't want to get political or anything, but not everybody, not everybody gets the, the kind of the big help uh, you know, like the, the like the corporations have around here, you know, from the government or RCAP or, you know, RACP funding and so on. Sometimes it's just a, a guy and his own resources or, or, you know, his own conventional financing to do things like this, and you know? I, I think what we've seen around equitable access to opportunities and resources is does the person or organization applying for the resources have the capacity and technical technical knowledge to understand how to navigate the application. True. And I think those folks that tend to get those large funding, especially through, um, you know, the, the state level um, redevelopment grants, they're highly technical applications. Uh, and it does require a capacity to know how to complete those applications, handle all the reporting, et cetera. So, you know, I think Benton really is uh, another example, especially when you think about its how much activity is occurring north of Perry Square versus how much activity is occurring south of Perry Square. And what we're seeing south of Perry Square really is individual efforts. Again, Joel Duterman, um, Pete Zafris and his family, Jim Berlin, and now now Benton. You know, also, you know, I think we should talk about Mark Tannenbaum mm -hmm. and um, what they're doing at Keller's. So, But it's, right, it's yeah. all individual right. versus corporate. Yeah, people putting their their whole 
their whole uh, nest egg into their dream, into their vision. Pretty remarkable. And I think what's going to go in there will truly be a destination for many uh, in this region, uh, a digital media arts uh, facility where you're focused on the creation of digital media arts and the exhibition of digital media arts. When we're thinking about, you know, large, broad kind of abstract conversations right now that are occurring around NFTs and digital art, it's easy to push back against it, I think, because in many ways we don't fully understand it yet. But I also think it likely is what the future will move towards. Um, I think that if we would have talked to people 15 years ago about the concepts or 20 years ago about the concepts of social media and people mm -hmm. spending so much time in a digital platform engaging with others, people probably would have scoffed at it or probably did scoff at it. Sure. And I think that that same thing is occurring around digital media arts right now. And I think that what Benton is building is somewhat unique for the country and can certainly allow Erie to play a role in the narrative of the next wave of arts and arts experiences. It, so are we talking about things like augmented reality and uh, the, the glasses, the, the whole... Hey, all that stuff. I yeah, guess, so yeah. anything that is... <laughs> I don't even know how to any, use the terms. Anything Patrick. that is created using yeah. um, digital tools and resources. So instead of painting and yeah. uh, jewelry smithing and, and things that are used using kind of tactile mm. um, analog processes and materials, this is all created in digital space and then uh, experienced through just like what you said, projection, augmented reality, virtual reality, etc., that's that's remarkable that Erie could have a a place where that flourishes here. Plus, you know, probably, you know, we need probably need a, a another studio for television commercials and you know products and podcasts and video podcasts and so on, right? I mean, yeah, and I don't know if that necessarily will be the space that that feed becomes. Okay, um, when I would think about how to relate it to others, like if you've ever been to Art Tech House in D.C. or Miami or Brooklyn something similar to that where you're really instead of trying to get people to put their phone away and pay attention to what's on the wall maybe you're asking them to bring their phone out and have oh it be a part of the experience so i'd say so kind of a gallery you think too yeah yeah i think so thinking about uh so again some some accessible examples would be what you saw around the van gogh experience right mm. that was all created as a digital art asset that was then projection mapped into a space, which then people stepped into and experienced in a way that was immersive. And you actually saw them encourage people to take pictures and use their phone. Um, same thing with Art Tech House that I mentioned before. You're using augmented reality as a way to, you know you can't fight the use of the phone, so why not bring it in on the experience? So it'll be something more like that than what we see at places like community access media. Gotcha, gotcha. All right, so let's talk about the merger of uh, the maker market and the feed space. How will that look when people come on out on uh, on the uh, Saturday, November 19th? Yeah, so they'll enter from 1307 State Street. Um, there should be ample parking in and around that area, um, but it is an um, ADA-accessible entryway off of State Street. You'll enter into the ground floor of the building where you will find all of our vendors. Um, it is three rooms on a ground floor that are more or less open um, floor print, but there is some division between them. 
Uh, I think most folks, as soon as they walk in, will probably experience a little bit of awe just based off of how beautiful the restoration is so far. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you'll be greeted by, like I said, over 40, almost 50 vendors from throughout Western Pennsylvania. Uh, so please come prepared uh, with cash and uh, credit cards <laughs> right. because we certainly want to see our local makers supported through this endeavor. Some of the vendors that, that are, are coming are Daggerfish Gear Company, uh, uh, Melancholy Clothing Brand, Void Boy Prints, Hikers and Hikes and Hoes, Jesse Simmons Ceramics. There's, there, there, you're, like you said, there's 40 plus vendors that are going to be at this event. There's a little bit for everybody. I and I know that that's kind of an easy thing to say, yeah. kind of uh, casually, but I truly believe that there's something for everybody that will be available at this market. Are, are you are are you are you uh, gratified that uh, it's such a draw, even just in its second year? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I hope that we see as much success this second year as we saw the first year, not just in the amount of folks that we have recruited as vendors, but the mm. level of support we see for those vendors. Like I said, over last year, I think we topped $12,000 in sales for our vendors. As we lead into the holiday season, that provides more buying power for those vendors. Uh, but also that's money that stays in our local economy. And I think that that's really important versus something that is purchased online, uh, shipped online, etc. So definitely hope to see uh, a great deal of success this year. Want to recognize and thank Erie Downtown Partnership again for their partnership Benton and feed for their partnership and then national fuel for their support it's a fun friday we're talking about erie arts and culture the executive director is with us patrick fisher and they've got their uh western pennsylvania maker market coming up saturday november 19th from 10 a.m to 3 p.m at feed media arts that's at 1307 state street and uh, as, as the release says, one of the newest additions, the Erie's Arts Ecosystem. And Patrick, we're really, we're really growing out that ecosystem in 2022. Yeah, we're certainly trying, and I think that it's you know a community effort. Uh, by no means can Erie Arts and Culture take credit for that. Uh, but we have some real tremendous players in that space that are doing really exciting things and things that are being made here but then shared out at not only a national platform but at a global platform. And I think an example of that would be Whitethorn Games mm-hmm. uh, over at uh, 12th and State. Yeah, we're, we're talking about this idea of arts and culture being an economic driver. And in the context, as, as, as we try to really turn the ship around, the ship of state around here in Erie, the arts and the culture and, culture and that quality of life that comes from it really is a, an essential partner to, to what we're trying to achieve, to our goals here. Yeah, I think that we have to look at it as a two-pronged approach where those investments in cultural assets and amenities help increase the quality of life, which makes us much more competitive when we think about other communities that are similarly trying to attract populations, right? Because when people aren't working, they want to do things. They want to engage with things. Uh, Similarly, those cultural investments make an investment in the aesthetics of place. And when the Knight Foundation did their Souls of Community study, they found that the single largest thing that can contributed to why people choose to live somewhere and invest somewhere is aesthetics of place. So their public art, their green spaces, their uh, parks, etc. So those investments we're making right now around public art are to improve our aesthetics of place. Uh, work we're seeing around um, 
revitalizing old historic buildings. That is an architectural form that is improving the aesthetics of place. So all of these uh, cultural investments do contribute to that. Similarly, when we're talking about being competitive and, and having an impact on the economy, we also need to be thinking about the creative industries because the creative industries are one of the fastest growing uh, segments of the economy almost nationwide. And a community like Erie is poised to really be a home to the creative industries in a meaningful way. We're close to major markets. We have an airport here. We have rail here. We have highway here. We have water access here. We don't really have major disruptive natural uh, weather patterns here. We have high-speed internet. We have universities here that can feed into that system. So we're poised to really take advantage and, and do something meaningful as it relates to the creative industries. And again, I think Whitethorn Digital is a great example of that. They moved here, they started here, they started out of radius, uh, and they started with just, I think, two or three employees. And I don't want to misspeak, but I think now they're somewhere around 35 or 45 employees. That's incredible. Wow. And that type of... And they're all coding and, and uh, the whole supply chain of making the... Uh, what are these, like PlayStation or Xbox type yeah, of games? Yeah, they're, so they're on all platforms. Okay. They specialize on, on low-stress games. So they're not oh. doing those high-stress games like Resident Evil and others that have... Call a, of Duty, yeah. Right. They're doing low-stress games that you can pop into, pop out of. It's huh. it's And those are the types of games that during the pandemic, a lot of people gravitated towards for the sheer fact that everybody was already stressed out, right? right yeah. So we don't want to participate in recreation activities that stress us out more mm. so those low stress games really served a high purpose during the pandemic and continue to so that's what they focus on in particular and the workforce they're attracting to erie they're attracting from markets like seattle like los angeles and other you know high density high cost of living places and they're bringing them here to erie to work out of downtown erie and many of those individuals because their starting salary is is you know a national competitive starting salary, they're able to make investments in our community, become homeowners, um, wow. contribute to the tax bracket, which benefits our schools and our roads and everything else. So I think that that's a really great model example of how if we support and invest in the creative industries, it's a very fast growth potential that we see and a return that we see from those types of businesses. I, I noticed that, I think it was the Buki plan that talked about you know, the kind of the center, you know, the entertainment district or the south of 12th Street District being uh, where, where, where artists could live and work in the same place. Uh, what, what are your thoughts on uh, these creative spaces like that? Yeah, you know, I've seen examples of it throughout the nation. I think one of the most impressive that I ever experienced kind of before it got big would have been the Rhino District in Denver. Uh, when I first started going to the Rhino District, it was just heavy industrial that was pretty highly vacant, but artists were moving in there, creatives were moving in there, small businesses were moving in there, and they had live workspaces. So they had maybe a storefront or a gallery on the ground floor that they could work out of and operate, but then their housing was on the second floor. Uh, and if you go to the Rhino District now, unfortunately, it's been so heavily gentrified because artists are oftentimes the folks that plow the field, nurture the soil, and then somebody else comes in and reaps the benefit. Wow. But that was a great example of how artists can create a sense of place and create value around place. The challenge is, is you want to seek development that doesn't lead to displacement. Mm -hmm. And that is why ownership is highly important, right? Yeah. So the fact that Benton Bainbridge can come to Erie and afford to purchase a building, uh, 
so that his sweat equity that he's putting in doesn't eventually lead to him being priced out. Right. Matthew White can afford to buy a building in Erie, create something unique, and not be priced out eventually. Mm-hmm. That is, I think, a good concern for Erie to have when we think about home ownership in the urban core. When I think in many of our neighborhoods that surround downtown, it's something like 70% renter occupied. Right. So sooner or later, we have to really get serious about what does it mean to commit to development without displacement because as rent continues to go up because downtown and the urban core is more desirable, we don't want to see people displaced. Mm-hmm. Uh, do you see other neighborhoods, uh, you know, you, you reference our West Bayfront, that area. Uh, are, there, are there areas that, that could, I, I think about 6th Street, that was always kind of the funky, one of the funky parts of town, which was kind of a cool, artsy, uh, you know, pie in the sky and grasshopper and so on. Uh, I mean, can people lean into some of those vibes uh, in different neighborhoods around the town? Yeah, I think the Sisters of St. Joseph's Neighborhood Network are doing a really fantastic job of that as well. In particular, if you look around that intersection of 19th and Chestnut, okay. where you have the shops at 19th and Chestnut that um, Pat and Rachel McCreary have really put a lot of time and effort and resources into um, that project. And then, you know, you have just down the road, you have Grounded Print and Paper Studio that Ashley Pastore has put a lot of effort into. So I think that that corridor, that that 19th Street corridor has a lot of potential. I also think there's always a ton of potential between 26th and probably 18th on Peach Street there. Again, another Sisters of St. Joseph's uh, block. So I think there's no shortage of really interesting um, potential within Erie's urban core. Yeah, that Federal Hill and a little bit north. Yeah, and then also what we're seeing right now with uh, the efforts going around Parade Street, I think that that has a lot of potential. Obviously, we need to see how that moves forward because it's in its very infancy phases, but I think that that also, you know, when you think about the history that, that Parade Street played in Erie, that has a ton of potential to, to serve in a major way moving forward. Well, we're excited about the Maker's Market. Uh, before I let you go, and I hope I'm not putting you on the spot, no, but right ahead. I, I consider you one of our top leaders uh, of the younger generation. And you've got, I, I would like you to weigh in on where our current civic conversation is, because um, we are having a little bit of a struggle between the generations. You're seeing that on city council. You might be even seeing that on county council. And and there's there's this, there you know it's kind of an inflection point of you know are we going to are we going to allow young leaders to lead? Yeah, I would be more than happy to respond. Oh, thank uh, you, Patrick. So. I think what attracted me back and what attracted a lot of others back was this national conversation we were hearing around Erie recognizes it's time to change. If we do not change, we die as a city, right? That's what brought people back is because if you think about 10 plus years ago, I'm talking about myself as well, I wanted to participate. I wanted to contribute. But at that point in time, to identify entry points to be able to make an impact were darn near impossible, right? People felt left out, shut out, whatever the case may be. And I think that the conversation started to shift to one that was inclusive, it was equitable, right? Conversation, at least. I think that there was a lot of conversation about Erie recognizing that its best days don't have to be behind it, but can be ahead of it and that there is an acknowledgement that change needs to occur. What I think time is 
proving is that one, that change is happening slower than some people might like, myself included, and that in some circumstances, people want different outcomes. They want a change of outcomes, but they're not willing to consider a change in approaches. So we're thinking that magically we can do things the same way, yet yield different results, which will not happen. And I think that definition that, of insanity, right? And I think that that is where that tension is arising mm. is you have folks that have come back, decided to participate, decided to invest because they believed the narrative that Erie recognizes it's time to change. But anytime there is a potential introduction of, well, how about we consider this as a point of change? It is shot down. It is uh, discouraged or it's ignored. So I think that for Erie to retain its talent and to really recognize that its best days can be ahead of it, not only does it have to seek different outcomes, but it has to be democratic in allowing different approaches and processes and procedures to define what those outcomes are. Do you, um, what, what I was getting a sense, and again, I don't want to pick on city council, but it was the most blatant uh, uh, part of, uh, of the tension here. Is it seemed like there were, the the old the elders were feeling a lack of respect from the youngers, um, uh, poor, poor politics. What do you think that was all about? Well, I think that it's challenging, right? Because what I see when I watch city council meetings is that it all stems from a breakdown in communication and a lack of a knowledge of how do you resolve conflict. Mm -hmm. So it ends up becoming personal attacks. And what I think that all of our elected officials would benefit from, whether it be um, mayors and county executives or city council members and county council members, recognizing that people are coming at this from typically private sector, right? They're not getting necessarily lifelong training in how to be a civic leader, but actually some investments in conflict management and resolution. Mm -hmm. um, learning how to communicate effectively uh, because I I believe in the power of I feel statements and owning what you're about to say and I just I see time and time again the the breakdown that we see is is purely about communication and then not steering meetings back in a direction not taking control of meetings once they get a little bit off rails and then allowing personal insults to creep in etc and so I think that uh, just better training around what it means to be a civic leader, what your responsibility is as a civic leader, but then also how to communicate as a civic leader, how to resolve conflict and tension as a civic leader, how to build consensus as a civic leader. That's not anything that any of our elected officials are receiving training and professional development in, but I think if we want to be effective and move forward, it maybe should be something that we start to consider. I feel like the nonprofit sector has a better handle on that be, I mean, at least, uh, you know, coming up in 30 years of nonprofit work, uh, we got a lot of training about leadership and a lot of training about communications and, and, uh, you know, making sure everybody was on the same page and, and dealing with conflict and so on. The, um, uh, <laughs> it's remarkable to me that, uh, part of our narrative has, has always been that the public, the public sector was always the last one to come across the, the finish line. But I would imagine that you're pretty optimistic of, of where we're going. I mean, I, in all the sectors. 
Yes and no. I think okay. that I'm a cynical by nature. <laughs> uh, and I think that each day that I wake up and choose to be optimistic, it is an intentional decision to do that. Okay. And it's a decision that requires work. Uh, because, again, I think I'm naturally actually kind of a cynic. Well, I, I was going to say, though, uh, it's to me, it's remarkable as a, as a, someone who loves the arts, but is not engaged, you know, not fully immersed it, that we've been able to kind of hold on to our legacy assets. Right. I mean, the, the you know, the Philharmonic that was built, you know, by private private, uh, you, know, you know, subscriptions 100 years ago plus or whatever, the Playhouse, same thing. Uh, we've been able to hold on to those legacy assets and build this new crop, this this new undertow of new and exciting, you know, arts assets in in town to build this quality of life. I mean, that's that's something to celebrate. Absolutely. I mean, there's definitely. Don't get me wrong. Yeah. There's tons of stuff to celebrate here. But when talking about the, am I optimistic about the future of civic leadership and engagement in Erie? Yeah. That is an area that I think I still remain somewhat. Um, on the fence about mm -hmm. because I think the one thing that I don't see in Erie that I see in other communities is strong advocacy groups. I think that Erie has not invested in building the capacity of advocacy groups and as a result of that we don't have those those groups present in our community that are good at keeping people honest and accountable and in a way that is not an attack in a yeah. way that doesn't lead people to become defensive but is fact-based, data-based, right? Mm -hmm. And is actually seeking outcomes as a result of the things that people have pledged or committed to. So, Do you think that's going to require a generational change? I think it's going to require maybe not a generational change, but a change in thinking about the role that activism plays in a community. Uh, I'm going gonna, gonna to make a political statement. You could totally disagree, mm -hmm. but I mean, in a, it's a democratic town, not to be super political, but you have the old Democrats and you have the new Democrats. So let, let's put the Erie County United folks in the new Democrats side of things. I'm not sure the old Democrats are giving those guys a whole lot of uh, leeway and, and uh, uh, leverage. You know, I don't even look at Erie and the city proper as like Democrat Republican, because I think even from a standpoint of Democrat, it's still rather centrist. It's still 100%. rather traditional. It's still quite conservative if we're being truly honest. And I think that that is, is where we start to see that disconnect within party lines yeah. is that even our Democrats who, if you're listening to national platforms, sometimes are deemed extremely left-leaning and liberal, but truthfully, it, they're more or less centrists, mm -hmm. right? And I think that you are seeing, you know, folks that are a little bit more left-leaning, myself included in mm -hmm. that, that group, that do have higher expectations, um, do have higher aspirations, do want to uh, lead with a sense of vision and imagination for what can be, but also want to make sure that our most vulnerable portions of the population are being looked after and not right. pushed to the margins, not uh, discredited simply because they don't have the funds to participate. So I, I, I think that uh, in general, maybe the value sets and value alignments are are slightly off, which is why we see that disconnect. Mm. Um, but I think that if we focused more on uh, conflict resolution, census building, et cetera, uh, we would we would probably get farther along in that process. And I, I, and I, and I do. Yeah. I think advocacy groups are so yeah. wildly important, yeah. and not just Erie County United, but others. I mean, if you think about Erie Coke, right? Mm -hmm. What kept Erie Coke honest was the advocacy groups we saw 100%. formed 
around the impact they were seeing. Sister Pat is a force 100%. of nature. Right. Holy moly. Yeah. But it can't just be Sister Pat. Yes. Right. It can't yeah. just be one person because when the responsibilities fall on just one person, one, that is a heavy crown to wear, but two, it doesn't think about passing the torch and succession and transition and how that sustains for future generations. If you want effective advocacy groups, you have to invest in their capacity because if they're just all volunteers, you're asking a lot of them. Do you, do you feel that the, out of arts and culture, some of this uh, advocacy and some of this moving of the, of the narrative of where the, or where the conversation and the conflict resolution is going? will come from well, arts and culture? Well, I think that, you know, the arts in Erie have predominantly been a commerce-driven market. Mm -hmm. um, when we think about where artwork is acknowledged uh, and engaged with, it's typically either in places like the Erie Art Museum or places like Glass Growers, which is a commercially-driven endeavor. Sure. So artists equally haven't been invested in to be activists through their work, to be advocates through their work because if you're doing work that is strongly like socially engaged whatever your social affiliation is mm -hmm. how do you feed yourself off of that right right so i don't think that we've had a lot of artists that have leaned in that direction even though the artists historically throughout the history of time have always been the record keeper of the community the megaphone for the community, but also the mirror that reflects society back to us. So I do think that that's an area that I, I would like to personally see the capacity of artists expand to think about not just can you create technically good work, but what is that work standing for? What is that work saying? And I'm not saying all work has to do that, right? Because right. the arts are a spectrum from the work that is commercial to the work that is public, but also that work that is socially engaged and informed. I think we'll have to pick up this conversation at a later time. I appreciate your candor. This is fantastic. Uh, we, we encourage folks to participate in the Western Pennsylvania Maker Market, uh, sponsored by Erie Arts and Culture. It's at Feed Media Arts on Saturday, November 19th, 10 to 3. Patrick Fisher, thank you so much, sir. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's always a pleasure. You've been listening to The Joel Natale Show, Erie, Pennsylvania's daily podcast from TalkErie.com. Subscribe to our show on your favorite podcatcher and get involved by emailing joel at TalkErie.com. <laughs>